0: Our reading this morning comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, for if you... Truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered? Only to go on doing all of these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Now go to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel." And now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently and you did not listen, and when I called you and you did not answer, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning and uh, welcome to Christ Community Leewood Campus. We're glad you're here. I'm Tom and uh, I have the joy of serving on our teaching team and also want to uh, thank the Hope Center for the partnership over the years. It's a delight to serve with you uh, and I'm grateful for your good work. Well, the terrorist attack of 9-11 was clearly an unforgettable moment for most of us. I think most of us recall that fateful Tuesday morning and the incredible shock we felt as we watched the Twin Towers crumble before us. 9-11 changed our lives, and it changed our nation. One of the things that emerged out of that is it introduced to us the idea, the uncomfortable idea, the unsettling idea, the unnerving idea of a threat assessment. I remember how scary it was to be in an airport when I encountered the latest update from Homeland Security of the Threat Assessment. Threat assessments, let's face it, are not a very pleasant thing, (laughs) but they do serve an important purpose, do they not? They remind us of the importance of staying alert in a dangerous, deceptive world. I was reminded of this when my wife Liz and I took a safety course not too long ago And one of the main objectives of the course was to teach us situational awareness and threat assessment. One of the main objectives of the course was to give us an understanding of color code threats. Green being the lowest and red being the highest. And we were taught that when we encounter a red threat moment, two things are required. Undivided attention and immediate action. Now, while a threat assessment is important in the physical realm, I want to suggest to you it is really important as well in the spiritual realm. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you the greatest threat to your spiritual life, think with me, how would you answer that? Perhaps you would say, It's my doubts. I struggle doubting my faith, doubting whether God is real, and whether the Bible can be trusted. Or that God is there for me or answers prayer. Maybe your greatest spiritual threat is an ongoing temptation that keeps tripping you up. And perhaps it's really the busyness of your life or the constant distraction on your smartphone that keeps you from cultivating intimacy with God. Now, I will give you doubt and temptation, <laughs> busyness and distractions are real threats to our spiritual life. But I want to suggest to you they are not the greatest threat. I believe the highest threat, the red level threat, is actually something else. I believe the red threat are the lies we tell ourselves. If you brought a Bible, turn with me to this amazing text in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. As we enter back into Jeremiah this morning, we are in a code red threat situation. And we are told by Jeremiah in the first two verses of chapter 7 that God instructs him to stand in front of the temple as people are going in front of him and give him a sermon. And if we look ahead in chapter 26... Remember, this is like a scrapbook anthology, not chronologically. In chapter 26, we are given more details about this moment. So you might want to read that today or this week. But let me just highlight a couple things that set the context. In chapter 26, we learn that this is a time following a reform time in Israel's history. King Jehoiakim is now enthroned. His son Josiah had a brief time of spiritual reform, but it's waning. But most important is to understand that Jeremiah is told by God this message is very urgent. It is a very tough message. God says to Jeremiah, unlike any other text I know of in the Old Testament, everything, emphasis in the Hebrew, everything I tell you, do not hold back one itsy-bitsy word. Can I translate it that way? Jeremiah, you're going to need the most undaunted courage because this message is going to be really hard to swallow. There's no spoonful of sugar to make this bad-tasting medicine go down. In fact, this was a little unsettling for a preacher. In Jeremiah 26, when Jeremiah gets done with this sermon we're going to look at this morning, they want to kill him. So I trust you won't do that to me this morning. But I will say This is a hard message for a pastor to give and a hard message for each one of us to hear because it's code red. Now, as we enter this text, help us to understand, people say, like, how does this flow with the series? It's a bit different here because up to this point, we have looked at Jeremiah's overwhelming circumstances. Now, in chapter 7, we encounter the overwhelming peril that God's covenant people are facing. As we go in, let's remember that at every word, it is code red. In verses 1 through 15, Jeremiah exposes in sequence three damnable, dangerous lies we tell ourselves. First, In verses 1 through 4, if you are framing your thoughts around the text or writing them out, first lie is my religiosity is really enough. On the heels of that, in verses 5 through 10, which is the primary thrust, is the second lie. How I live doesn't really matter. And it builds to the third lie in verses 11 through 15. God really won't hold me accountable. So you ready? Let's dive in. Look at me at verses 3 through 4. This is the first lie. My religiosity is really enough. Now, notice what the text says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust, notice, these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Now, Jeremiah gets right to the point here it's time for big change. This perilous deception they are telling themselves is emphasized in the literary structure, repeating it three times. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. So what's going on here? Remember, this is 2,500 years ago plus. Now, God's covenant people had deceived themselves into thinking that they were safe and secure by regular attendance at the temple, resting in their religious traditions, and going through expected religious motions. Underlying their self-deception was this idea that because God's manifested presence dwelt in the most holy place in Solomon's temple, they were untouchable. So in light of the present geopolitical threats, with Babylon breathing down their throats, they thought, hey, we just stay close to the temple. We're cool. We're safe. God's on our side. And they told themselves the lie that the religious tradition and the rights of religios- religios- religiosity easy to say, were enough. In other words, they had the ultimate good luck charm. And let's face it, if you walked in their day, people from around the world came to see Solomon's temple. It was amazing. Here's a list of representation. It doesn't show the scale of it. But they thought, there's no way in God's green earth that's going to be rubble. God dwells there. So while we don't go around, I trust, we might get asked if we were in our right minds, walking around, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, Forms of religiosity can deceive us too, can they not? Our temple of the Lord may be baptism. Baptism, baptism, baptism. We may tell ourselves we have been baptized in a church. We are a Christian that our spiritual maturity is assured and our eternal destiny is secured. We've been baptized. For some, it may be a sinner's prayer public confession of faith, a confirmation class, attendance at church, partaking of communion, or tithing. It's not that these things are bad in themselves, quite the opposite. But they can be forms of religiosity, a kind of spiritual good luck charm, a merely going through religious motions without a heart and life change. And Jeremiah reminds us right at the beginning that religiosity in almost any form can be deadly and blinding. That's why religiosity devoid of true gospel transformation can be so perilous to your soul and mind. External religiosity without heart and life change is what Jeremiah is describing here in chapter 7. And it's what 20th century brilliant German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his brilliant book that I recommend to you, The Cost of Discipleship, describes as cheap grace. And here's what he says. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. That is what we mean by cheap grace, the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. And then he goes on to say, Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Notice, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying, as Jeremiah is saying, just in a different cultural context, that cheap grace is a deceptive, subtle religious counterfeit. It is unlike the costly grace taught in Holy Scripture, And cheap grace is a distortion. It is a distortion, hear it carefully, where salvation in Christ and discipleship with Christ are for all practical purposes separated. Where profession of faith and obedience of faith are conveniently disjointed. Where the cross of Christ has little if any connection to the yoke of Christ. While cheap grace claims to embrace the cross of Christ, it is often unwilling to take up one's own cross and follow Christ, as Jesus demands. Someone described to me, I thought this was good, what cheap grace is like. It's like winning the spiritual lottery. Lottery winners, if you know, get all excited, right? And if I won the lottery, I would too. You're right? They quit their jobs, they live a life of ease. It's like they've got it made in the shade. They are secure. They have all the immediate benefits, of course, with no long-term responsibilities. But if you know the history, most lottery winners, the outcome is not very encouraging. Cheap grace is like that. Costly grace, biblical grace, on the other hand, leads to sacrifice. And it leads to joining a family with privileges and responsibilities. For the Christian, true grace of course, it is not an important thing. It's the foundational thing. It is essential. But what is it? Grace is God's gift to us supremely in the person and work of Christ, in his atoning death and his glorious resurrection. Yet the indescribable gift of gospel grace can be corrupted and is often When we fail to understand that while grace is opposed to any human merit whatsoever, grace is not opposed to human effort. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. This is what God's covenant people are deceived by. Gospel grace not only saves us from something, eternal separation from God forever, but it also saves us for something, a life of obedient apprenticeship with Jesus. Grace properly understood motivates the recipient of saving grace to a life of whole surrender and obedience to Christ in all dimensions of life. The New Testament writer James, who the great tradition is, he was Jesus' half brother. Strong tradition. And knew Jesus' teaching and knew him well. Perhaps one of the humans that knew him best. What he taught, his life. And James warns us of the peril of cheap grace by reminding us in James chapter 2 that authentic Christian faith leads to authentic heart and life change. And James says, if your life is not changing, if your heart is not changed when you are spiritually born, you do not have gospel faith. It's a very strong statement. Like Jeremiah did in his time, we all face, all of us, the real and present danger of presuming on God and going through the religious motions, of performing religious rites and rituals without repentance and heart-life change. Now hear me carefully. Repentance is not merely having remorse for our sin. It is that. But it is an act of our will turning from our sin to Jesus and his sufficiency in the gospel. Have you bought into the lie, have I bought into the lie, that my religiosity, your religiosity, whatever the liturgy or form or motivation is enough? The second lie Jeremiah highlights in verses 5 through 10 is on the heels of cheap grace distortion. And that is, how I live doesn't really matter. We may not say that explicitly, but we often live like that. And God's covenant people in Jeremiah's time did the same. Look at me at verse 5. God says to Jeremiah, for if you will truly amend, it's a picture of repentance, change your ways and deeds. Now I want you to notice from a literary standpoint the repetition of these two Hebrew words, ways and deeds frame the whole verse. It's the whole structure. Ways and deeds and deception frame the thought. Twice Jeremiah repeats these two Hebrew words with a sort of antiphonal refrain. What do they mean? This is really important to get together. What they mean, these two words, is the totality of our faith. It's a Hebrew literary style of showing two things that describe the whole. It is a comprehensive picture of the totality of one's life: our thoughts, our feelings. Our motives and our actions and our priorities. One of the ways we understand how the Old Testament works is how other prophets use this Hebrew word. Haggai uses it to frame his whole book. He says, "Consider your in English ways." And Haggai challenges God's people after they come back to the land because of misplaced priorities with their money and wealth. Eugene Peterson, in his message paraphrase, says this brilliantly. He says, clean up your act, (laughs) the way you live and the things you do. Jeremiah, in his hard-hitting sermon, says, you're deceiving yourself. You're deceiving yourself thinking regular attendance at the temple is what is really important and not how you live every day after that. Notice with me the emphasis, the comprehensive nature of verses 5 through 10 you will have here one of the most brilliant portrayals of the sins of omission and commission, the sins of injustice and impurity, the sins of public life and private life. I mean, Jeremiah covers it all. He says, you've not been seeking justice in the world. You've not been caring for the vulnerable. You've avoided the Ten Commandments, right? Five of them he lists. Clearly, the holiness of God, the God they are worshiping, has been lost. And their morals are in shambles. So Jeremiah is saying, it's time to clean up your act. Now notice how Jeremiah drives the point home with a thud in verse 10. They still have the audacity to come to the temple and say, we are just fine. And the biblical piece is, we're saved. How often we hear that today, right? We're delivered. We're saved. What a perilous, false sense of security that is, or at least can be. It certainly was in Jeremiah's time. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, How can your vertical relationship with God be right if your horizontal relationships are so wrong? There's no convenient separation of those two, as Jesus will say in the Great Commandment, of course. So, God, through his servant Jeremiah, is saying to his covenant people and to us, You are deceptively compartmentalizing your life. You got a big Sunday to Monday gap going on here, fellas. You're living like Monday doesn't matter to God. But wow, does it matter to him? Because if our Sunday worship is too small, then we will not have a big impact tomorrow. At our recent Made to Flourish conference, we just had our first national conference. God blessed it in amazing ways. And one of my good friends in Detroit, Chris Brooks, amazing pastor in the urban center of Detroit, gave a powerful talk. Chris made a strong case regarding the American church's greatest peril, which I could not agree with more, as sad as it makes my heart. He said, quote, One of the biggest mistakes we make is seeing our lives as compartmentalized, as opposed to seeing our lives as being far more integrated. So let's be honest. Don't we, don't I have an uncanny ability to rationalize just about any sin? (laughs) It's scary how I can do that, and I know it's scary for you. But isn't it amazingly also how adept we are at conveniently compartmentalizing our lives? I believe one of sin's greatest allies, one of Satan's greatest tactics is for us to compartmentalize our lives that our Sunday faith and our Monday life are not connected is one of the most prominent lives we often believe. Yet true gospel faith brings a seamless coherence, a transforming integration that connects what we profess to believe on Sunday and how we live in the world on Monday, in our relationships with others, in how we love and serve our families and our neighbors and our city, in the values we embody, in the way we do our work, in how we promote justice and care for the vulnerable, in how we create and steward money and wealth, in how we live out our gospel faith and share our gospel faith with others. See, the failure to apply what we believe to how we live was a big blind spot in Jeremiah's day for God's covenant people. And I want to suggest to you across the American church, it is a perilous blind spot for us. We are so quick, most of us, to say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord on Sunday. We sing songs, say prayers, listen to sermons. Those are all good things. But God is saying to us through his holy word, how are we living out gospel faith on Monday? I care about that too, God says, in amazing ways. So will we truly let God be God? Not just here. Not just on Sunday, but while we let God be God on Monday. That's the big question Jeremiah has for his people and the question God has for us for his holy word this morning. It's something all of us must ponder. For our Sunday worship is way too small if it doesn't make a big, big impact tomorrow. The first lie Jeremiah exposes here, a lie you and I want to believe, is my religiosity is really enough. The second lie Jeremiah exposes is how I live doesn't really matter. But as we have seen, how we live does really matter. And this is where Jeremiah builds his literary crescendo in this text. In verses 11 through 15. Which is the ultimate lie. And that is that God won't really hold me accountable for my life. Let's be honest. In our cultural context... The judgment of God is an implausible idea, and most of us do not really believe our God of mercy, grace, and love, hallelujah for that, will judge anyone, let us, let alone us. And perhaps, I think, our temple of the Lord, our temple of the Lord, our temple of the Lord today is, God is love, God is love, God is love. But as the prophet Isaiah reminds us when he sees who God is, it is not love, love, love as important as it is. holy, holy, holy. God never winks at sin. He hates it with the most intense hatred and he judges sin and his only begotten son, our precious Lord Jesus, shed his blood and died on a cross to save us from it. Throughout the scripture, the reality of divine judgment Future judgment is a constant thread. Old and New Testament. The writer of Ecclesiastes says at the very end, what is it? Fear God and keep his commandments for God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. God has not changed. Jesus, brilliant Jesus, in his parable of the talents, reminds us that our vocational stewardship will be evaluated at the end of time. Paul, in his letter to Romans, a letter that exposes and expands the brilliance of the gospel of grace. Do not miss in chapter 14 his emphasis, verse 10 and 12. He says, you too, believer, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And in verse 12, lest we miss it, chapter 14, he says, so then, strong inferential conjunction, so then, each one of us will give, will give an account of himself to God. Why don't we hear this more in the American church? It is telling how prevalent and perilous and pernicious cheap grace is across our land. Here in verses 11 through 15, Jeremiah basically says, you think by going through the motions at the temple that you have pulled the wool over God's eyes? You have it." Notice the emphasis. The Hebrew text is emphatic. It's unusual. God says, I myself have seen it. And then he says, you are like a den of thieves, hiding out. The idea here is a false sense of security. When you've done something wrong, you hide in a cave. And the false sense of security is that you're in the temple. He says, you're not fooling anyone but yourself. And notice God's strong indictment in verse 11. Do you see it? Has this house, the temple which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes behold i myself have seen it declares the lord in other words jeremiah is saying god's word if you don't change your ways i'm going to bring judgment on you like i did many years ago and he says shiloh the first place of the tabernacle where god's presence dwelt i'm going to do the same thing to jerusalem And not only that, he says in 15, I'm going to cast you out of my sight. This is an intense message. If I'm faithful to the text, I can't go anywhere else. And it has timeless relevance to us. Remember, the sermon I warned you up front is code red. It's like a parent Seeing their child. I think we've all had that moment where they made them almost lost. We can't find them. Or they're moving toward a busy street. And you see them going toward a street. And what do you do? There is imminent danger. A loving God is crying out with increasing volume. Not in a sense of condemnation. But the text is one of loving Urgency. Offering God's people another opportunity for heart, repentance, and true hope. This is the same loving urgency that caused Jesus to weep over Jerusalem. And Jesus uses the imagery of the den of robbers in the New Testament. When he confronts the false spiritual security and religiosity of the religious leaders. Wow. What Jeremiah, Jesus, and the rest of the biblical writers remind us, hear this carefully is that authentic faith, gospel faith, leads to a heart change, a life and lifestyle that is fundamentally different in character, in motivation and action. In other words, a new birth, as Jesus portrays in John 3, from above, is made possible by the Holy Spirit, and it leads to a new life in the Holy Spirit. Our Sunday worship is just too small, if it doesn't make a big impact tomorrow. Christ calls all of us to a life that worships him everywhere. So Jeremiah brings to us a spiritual threat assessment. And I want to suggest three questions that I am pondering in my own life that I challenge you to ponder in application this morning. First is the question, what lies have you been telling yourself? Okay, The most perilous threat to your spiritual life, I believe, and Jeremiah seems to be saying in this text, are the lies we tell ourselves. So what lies are we believing? Are we believing that your past or present religious practices assure your eternal destiny and spiritual maturity? That the sins of your past or present are just too much for God to forgive? Or that somehow you can merit God's favor through the things you do or don't do? Or that you live and work on Monday and how you do doesn't really matter that much to God? How you treat others at school, at work, or in your home? Are you convinced that's not that big of a deal? Are you convinced that God will wink at your financial mismanagement? Or moral indiscretions? That your indifference for the vulnerable? For injustice around you is really of no consequence? Do you convince yourself that God is not aware of your secret sins? Or your secret thoughts? That the idols of pleasure or security tugging at your heart and mind need not concern us? That we are just too busy with work, school, children, life. That we don't have time for spiritual disciplines and cultivating intimacy with God. Do you convince yourself that you'll live your life now as you please? Ignoring we all walk on a tightrope of time over eternity. (laughs) And you'll one day have the opportunity to get right with God later. Second question Where is repentance needed in your life? God's covenant people in Jeremiah's time thought their temple worship gave them license to sin rather than helping them change from sin. It was a perilous deception of cheap grace. Jeremiah calls God's covenant people to repentance, and God calls us to a posture of repentance too. Have you in repentance and faith embraced the gospel of grace? Notice the brilliant harmony the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. For we, and don't stop there, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, or works, which God ultimately prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. No cheap grace there. Will you place your complete trust in Jesus this morning as your Lord and Savior if you've not done that? If you've embraced the gospel, let me ask, how is the gospel speaking into every nook and cranny of your life? The scriptures say when we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, we become a new creation in Christ for good work. You have been saved from eternal separation from God and you have been saved for a new life of daily apprenticeship with Jesus, growing Christ-like character and faithful life stewardship. Have you bought into the cheap grace idea of clinging to the benefits of salvation without embracing the responsibility of following Jesus and obedient discipleship? Are there areas of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is calling you to address in your life this morning? What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about this morning? Is there a heart attitude that needs immediate attention? Is it code red? Is there a relationship that you know is not right that's code red? Are there life priorities that are out of whack that are code red? A lifestyle that is distractive, inattentive, and lacking discipline is code red. Much is on the line. For the follower of Jesus, repentance is not merely a one-time thing. It's a way of life. It's a constant recalibration of love and obedience to serve Jesus who died for you and me. Christian faith is not merely something we believe in. It is a person we follow with everything we are and everything we have and a new life we live in the world. Last question is how is your Sunday faith shaping your Monday life? The gospel calls us to a life that worships everywhere. A primary place we worship is not here on Sunday, but wherever God has called you to serve him in the world tomorrow. How will you approach tomorrow? Knowing that God is with you and he's watching over you. Will you live before an audience of one or an audience of many tomorrow? Will you enjoy God's constant, tender presence in your life and experience the joy of worshiping him as you serve others at school, at home, or in your workplace? And will you see what you do tomorrow as a primary way you are being formed into greater spiritual maturity? And will you see where God has placed you sovereignly tomorrow as a primary place you have the privilege of being a witness for Jesus, both by incarnating His life in all that you are and do in your character, but also in proclaiming the good news of the gospel that people are lost forever without. I believe the greatest threat to my spiritual life and to yours are the lies we tell ourselves. What lies are you telling yourself? What lies are you believing? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. The prophet Jeremiah rings across time with his wisdom and truth. So open our eyes and hearts to the lies we tell ourselves. Lord Jesus, grant us the courage to repent where we need to repent. And may we truly embrace your gospel of grace. Empower us through your Holy Spirit to live under your gracious lordship, we pray. In Jesus' powerful and resurrected name, the name above every name that we bow before, amen.